Hi, and welcome to the Perpetual Stew. I'm Matthew Goodman. And I'm Sarah Merle. And this week, this is our creativity in non-creative spaces, or maybe the way to put it is spaces that are not seen traditionally as creative. Um, But first, we need to do our question that's always important. So Sarah, what are you eating and uh, what's eating you? Uh, So this is a non-food one, but do you know who the comedian slash actor Brian Jordan Alvarez is? I do not. So he got he kind of blew up over uh, over the panty because he's you know he absolutely rocks the clock app. He's the TikTok superstar, and he does character work that I swear to fucking god, like he doesn't put on like elaborate makeup or anything. He uses stupid filters and like literally puts a wig on with the lace still attached and does these characters that are so goddamn real to me and so fucking funny, like. He has your rich southern aunt is like the famous one, but it's like, oh yeah, me and Dale are, you know, we're out at one of our houses. I, I honestly forgot that we even had this place out here in Colorado. And it's so fucking funny that these people are real to me. One of them is like, like one of his parents is clearly uh, English as a second language speaking Spanish because he does the most perfect like uh, uh, Spanish to English accent. And it is so fucking funny because he has this like, uh he has this like spanish uh like exotic mediterranean sort of like um uh heiress character that's like always launching a skincare line but like a skincare line um (laughs) with like a paired peloton workout it's so fucking funny brian jordan alvarez if you don't already know now you know look him up that is fantastic i love it um nothing's eating me except for the things that are always eating me which is having a business is irritating and there's never a day that you know what the next day is going to be like. What about you? (laughs) Uh, The joys of entrepreneurship, right? Truly. Uh, This is one of those. Okay. So uh, it doesn't say that funny myth that talk about all the entrepreneurs and the small business owners out there. (laughs) Um, I think that it's great. And, but Lord knows how hard it is Has someone who has uh, tried to, uh, who has launched nonprofits for profits, it seems really glamorous from the outside. It's like the American myth, but dear God, speaking of eating, it eats everything. It eats everything. So what I want to tell, like the thing that no one can tell you until you're in it is that like, when I say that 90% of my thoughts are consumed by my business, whether it's things that I have to do for it or like things that I want to develop in the future or like bills that I have to pay or whatever to not think about it. I have to do something completely engrossing or so dangerous that if I don't think about what I'm doing for a second, I might lose like a finger. You know what I mean? And it's for real. What about you? What's eating you and what are you eating? Now, this makes me think about um, a show that I'm watching. What I'm eating right now is uh, (laughs) the limited run TV show, The Baby. The Baby. Okay. It is about a uh, young mother, uh, Natasha, who's 38, she doesn't want kids, and then suddenly, literally, a baby falls out of the skies into her arms. This is great. I love this and, stuff. Yes, and this is after its previous mother throws herself off a cliff. Um, and <laughs> sorry, Natasha not tries funny. to con- no. Natasha tries to convince everyone around her that it's not her baby, but apparently, in su- with supernatural baby powers, 
everyone just seems to believe it is hers. And then everyone around her just starts dying in ways that in which it is suspicious that the baby is in fact the one killing them. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, it's an eight part, uh, it's an eight part miniseries. Uh, it's on HBO Max. <laughs> awesome. And it is fantastic. The baby, oh, of course, the baby is wonderful. Um, it is probably the most coherent baby performance I've ever seen, thanks to CGI and stuff oh, like that. Oh, great. Okay, good. Yeah, good. Um, there, there are actual babies, but you know, you know how it is. So it's like um, a, it's like a, it's like a omen meets look who's talking now i would say like the omen meets like prestige comedy <laughs> like like the omen meets fleabag or something like that oh that's amazing okay i'm in yeah. i love it it's Have you, really fantastic are you a fan of barry barry is very good barry is anyway i I, if I ever met Bill Hader, all I would tell him is, you are the most brutal person who's ever written a script, and I cannot wait to turn on Barry and see how you're going to punch me anew today. It is... Uh, so those of you who haven't seen Barry, um, <laughs> it is, I guess, ostensibly a hitman story. Yeah, it is and it isn't, right? It's it's really a story about like violence and mental health and nonviolent violence of Hollywood, and... As my friend uh, Eric described it, um, who is my favorite person to watch Barry with, uh, it is like the scenes there. There's a lot of violence in it because it's about it. It is about a hitman. Right. And it's a hitman who gets involved in acting because he a hit is put out on an actor in Henry Winkler's acting class. And that's how he gets into it. And it's absolutely fucking hilarious. And it's great because they're great with brutal violence, because, of course, there's brutal violence in it. But also. Hollywood is a brutally violent place, even if nobody ever raises a fist or raises a voice, right? And his girlfriend is an aging, beautiful, blonde actress who is, you know, at that 30s to 40s cusp where you go from ingenue to mom in in Hollywood terms. And yes. the way that, you know, this is a kind of, uh, you know, Shakespearean tragedy for her. And at the same time... <laughs> You know, Barry is doing some pretty intense violence to people, uh, but you feel this kind of smiling violence that's always being inflicted upon Sally all the time. And it's really good at, at those two contrasts. There is always something kind of tragic about uh, people who are so stunningly beautiful Yeah, that as someone who is never an ingenue and <laughs> could never be stunningly beautiful... Um, I have seen those people I know uh, with those gifts deal with it in different ways. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's easier for me to age because I'm like, well, I've always <laughs> been sort of like a five. So uh, I think I'll continue to stay a five yeah. age appropriate. I'll be okay. Like <laughs> I, I, this is not me denigrating myself. This is me being uh realistic because i don't pride myself on my look so if someone called me a five I'd, like give them the thumbs up and a high five well it's um, yeah, it's not it's it, i i just described you know julia fox the the woman that uh kanye west was dating who's just mm -hmm. like has extremely desperate energy and the way i <laughs> that's a really good way to put it yeah the way i described her <laughs> is somebody who is hot was hot was like a super like blazing hot 25 year old right and like was like sweet i'm set up like 
personal development. Fuck that. I'm hot. Like, look at these tits. They're amazing. And they are. And then you reach like an age where you, you find out actually how quickly you, in fact, age out of conventional mm-hmm. hotness standards. And it's way fucking earlier than you think. <laughs> like, like the drop off of like messages that I get on like the fetish dating site that I use the drop off from like 28 to 33 is so fucking shocking and you can change nothing about your profile other than that like your numerical age goes up and she just seems like a kind of person who gets really hot and then crosses over that threshold when people are like great uh what can you do what do you know and she's like oh shit nothing and has that kind of desperate like wait 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 wait. i still have all this hot years like i still feel hot and it's like you are still hot like 40 is young but like if you're fully bought into this if all you want is approval from an incredibly sexist ageist system then when you're a woman and you're 40 even if you are really hot you don't feel very hot because you don't get any feedback of that variety and it's a peculiar sort of uh invisibility this is what some of my friends who have sort of gone from yeah um the hot young thing phase to now like you know uh, (laughs) i I remember there was a quote by a porn star who said that uh she went from being like just barely 18 to milf from (laughs) 18 to 23 but she started getting milf castings when she was 23 um, which is in fucking crazy to me, and it's strange because I have one one of my close friends who's you know very beautiful, uh, but into her late thirties now. She said that she would have to spend her whole life being looked at, and then suddenly when she like tipped over this invisible line, now she just goes around and she feels constantly invisible. And I'm yep. like, well, this is the way the rest of the world has lived. Um, last last fuckable day my favorite julia louise dreyfus and uh tina fey sketch and again as a as a man it's a it's a different sensation because again i've always been just like sort of a five and my grandma told me you know uh, when i was struggling with this as a teenager um (laughs) i guess she said you know you spend most of your life old that's all I have been saying this to people since I was 25 years old. Mm-hmm. I was like, we are, you don't understand. We are going to spend the mo- majority of our lives with non-elastic skin. You have <laughs> to stop worrying about it now because it will make up two thirds of your life. Yeah. If you're lucky, exactly if you're it. lucky. And she always said, you know, focus on don't, don't mistake being attractive with being interesting. because at a certain point you age out of being attractive but you never age out of being interesting yes thank you and and like god okay my one of my dad's surgical partners most of his partners are you know very faithful and stuck with the one wife uh but he had one that just loved to trade him in like cars right and yeah Loved a loved a real hot lady and could not figure out why he just didn't really like him after about seven years. Well, <laughs> you add it all up, that seven years is about 37. And you're like, no, I know. Oops, I said his name. You can bleep it out. Uh, Doc, <laughs> Doc on, I have me, a guess. Let me mark that. <laughs> I marked it. I got a guess there, Doc. Uh, it 
it could be that you do not think women are people. There was also a novelist who was like a 50-year-old man who said, I just can't find women attractive after they're 25. Great, great, great. <laughs> just DiCaprioing all over town. Ugh. And this is... Let's get into the main topic today. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I think these things go together. I do too. Um, that, you know, even though you and I both technically work in fields that are labeled, I think, from the exterior as non-creative. Right. I doubt there are very many people who would say, oh yeah, lawyers are part of the creative class <laughs> or, entre- or or like small business owners are part of the creative class. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned to you before that when I was younger, I was, you know, super cool. So I was taking uh, poetry <laughs> classes at Columbia uh, on the weekend. So I take uh, Metro North into Grand Central and then, you know, take the subway up. Yeah. He, my dad just said, you know, just remember that your creativity doesn't just apply to your poetry or your music, yep. but it applies to anything that you do, whether it's law or medicine or business, that these skills that you're learning and how to be creative, how to self-critique, how to generate new ideas, they're applicable across the board. Yes. And I think that it's important, especially because I think most of our listeners, a lot of our listeners are in the law or in teaching or in other areas that are not seen as creative yeah. about how you and I both integrate and nurture our creativity in these fields and why creativity, I think, needs to be more prized in them. Oh, my uh, God. Okay. Uh, because I was also very cool, um, I spent my <laughs> childhood uh, building uh, buildings out of popsicle sticks and hot glue. Uh, because I think the world- you actually beat me there. <laughs> the world of pops the the possibilities with a with a box of two thousand popsicle sticks and you know two pounds of plastic glue is truly endless. Uh, but in that, you know, the more you get interested in just experimenting and playing, right? Like it's it's not about creativity. Oh my god, we're already starting on like douchebaggy platitudes. But like creativity <laughs> is is truly like the willingness to experiment, the willingness to fail. Because even in all your failures, like the reason that I loved art class is because I got all this experience with new materials, right? Like Mm -hmm. you get to play with wax and wax is a kind of fat and you will encounter something else in your life that acts the way wax does. Or, uh, you know, you learn about solubility temperatures of dye. I'm thinking about batiking right now. But, you know, you learn what like sintering is with pottery, like you know, you are essentially turning uh, ground up rocks, you're heating them up until they fuse back together into a big piece of now reformed rock. And like, these principles repeat themselves over and over again across like a huge variety of materials. And at some point you will encounter if you just keep bringing in like I uh, we were talking about before, I used to tell the kids that worked at the um, worked that went to the creative writing camp that I used to work at, uh, that your creative self is a factory and you got to keep importing parts to be able to put something out so even if you're writing you need to go to the symphony or if you're doing visual art like you need to go to a hip-hop show or a you know spoken word situation you know what i mean like you just need to fill your brain with parts that might not seem related but boy they come in handy when it's time you know because if you thought that they were so obviously connected at first glance, it's very likely that somebody else has already made that connection. Yep. So I think this is this is a wonderful metaphor. Um, 
that you're not an assembly line. <laughs> and assembly lines are great for producing things that other people have already designed and thought of. Yep. But it's not how you actually make the design in the first place. So I think yep. that um, there's this really uh, interesting uh, research on creativity that shows that there's takes years of experimentation, like between three and seven years of exploration unguided mostly yep. of exploration of just searching out and, and innovating in, in I think play is the right word playing with yep. new concepts, materials, stuff. Yep. And then it's only after those years that, y- that you actually know how to apply it. Oh my God. They, that's what they tell you when you, you know, I love listening to authors talk about writing a book because writing a book is a nightmare. Like it's truly just like the world's longest mental labor, you know? I'm in editing for one now. So yes, I know. (laughs) Well, talk to, I mean, talk about it because, you know, they say like the, the hardest part, like Elizabeth Gilbert is great about writing about the reading and gathering part. And when it's time to put that, you know, you put, you put, put the car in gear, right? It's time to go. When is it time to go? So this is a really, thank you for asking, because this is something I I really happened to me this way, that I came across James Carse's Finite and Infinite Games. And if you don't know who James Carse is, he was, uh, he he studies divinity, technically. So he was like head of Harvard Divinity. I think he's at NYU now. Mm -hmm. And he wrote this weird little book in like the late 70s, early 80s about finite and infinite games. And one of the book reviews of it at the time was that, oh, it's a lovely thought exercise, but it's completely impractical. It doesn't tell you the meaning of what an infinite game is. We know the meaning of finite games, to win, right? Yep. But the meaning of an infinite game, well, the goal of an infinite game is to keep playing, but it doesn't give you any guidance beyond that. So the the, the reviewer for The New Yorker was like, this is a nice little fun trinket, but it's not actually anything useful. And and it's had these waves of popularity every, you know, five to seven years, Silicon Valley or the equivalent will like start reading it, but then none of them will actually figure out what to do with it. So then it, you know, drops out again until someone discovers it again. <laughs> and so I read it in like 2015, 2016. And it's a short little book, by the way, you can listen to it in a cup in a few hours on Audible, you can buy it, read it in a couple hours. It's not very long. And honestly, if you just read the first half of it, you'd be fine. Um, seriously, all of the heavy lifting is done in the first half. As, so as then, with most books like that. Yeah. And it just kept worming away at me um, that I thought that there had to have been a lot of work in this because it seemed so <laughs> meaningful to me. Um, but there just wasn't. There wasn't a lot to go off of because everyone was just like, nah, it's not useful. Yeah. Can't think of a way to apply it. So then flash forward to 2020, it's the, I've been thinking about this for five years at this point, basically, and it's COVID winter. I'm in my mom's basement quarantining so I can spend Thanksgiving and Christmas with her. So I have two weeks, basically, (laughs) 10 days um, with nothing to do other than to take care of Benny. And I'm literally in my mom's basement. I'm not seeing anybody else. (laughs) So... I'm struggling with filling my time after the first day. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm going to start putting down my thoughts on applying infinite games to capitalism and American democracy. And then eventually I'm just like, these are two different books. I'm just going to write about American democracy. And then I realized 
as I'm working on it, that there's a lot of similarities to sports and sports leagues. Yep. And basically over that 10 day period, I wrote the first draft of the book. Um, That's awesome. By looking up some of my favorite, reminding myself of some of my favorite sports stories, because I, again, very cool. I had this book called uh, the book of weird and wonderful sports stories. Yes. Awesome. And I was just going back through a lot of these sports stories and some more contemporary ones and showing how they created perfect analogies for understanding right and wrong. Basically, it's a political moral philosophy book. Sweet. Applying finite and infinite games theory through the lens of sports to American democracy. But it took me, you know, it only took 10 days-ish to write. But it took it actually took me, you know, almost five years yes. of playing with this idea in my free time, uh, just or just in the shower or, you know, walking the dog. Um, and it crystallized and came together. And again, something that appears non-creative at first. And all of that time where I'm literally, you know, in the shower muttering to myself about these ideas and like <laughs> frustratingly not knowing how to piece it together or, or looking up doing, you know, uh, LexisNexis searches to try to see if there's scholarship on these topics and coming up short. That was all part, I think, of my creative process. So that's a very long uh, way of saying it. But basically, you know, I think that's a pretty familiar story, I think, to anyone who's written um, a book of this kind or done any work of this kind. I don't know. What do you think? I I love that. I mean, I think the the importance of like when we talk about like, oh, what is creativity, which is a pointless question to ask if you ask me. It's just like it's problem solving, right? Like, you know, it's it is as innate to us as our desire to like beat a rhythmic drum. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but, uh, the th- you know, the thinking part of it in, in writing, we say and when you go through a program, they say, write what you know. Right. Which is kind of silly when you're 21 and they tell you to write like a, a, me- a memoir style essay. But. I would say, like, write what you're interested in after you know it, right? Like, Mm. stay – creativity is merely the production side of curiosity, right? Like, there is – the, um, there is the intake docs, the in the, the the in docs on one side of the factory, and that is your curiosity. And then whatever you put out is a product of however you synthesize and satisfy your curiosity. And, like – Sometimes, and it's not going to be good most of the time. <laughs> oh my god, no, it's going to be dog shit most of the time. And I I think that like um you know, people really uh really undervalue goofy things like, you know, a blogging site or um you know, one of the hardest writing jobs I ever had was writing organic social media content for a media company that also partner was was you know part of an events company like which you think that would be the easiest fucking thing in the world no, that except that's so hard <laughs> that you're writing you know 10 posts at a time about one event every post has to be a little bit different every post has a little bit different goal you really only get a sentence or two like two if you're really being lazy about it ideally you do it in like 14 words or less uh but you know, then you then you do this times, let's say twenty five events or fifteen accounts or whatever, and by the end you've written, you know, a, a long form essay, but with like 
you know, 14 to 28 words at a time uh, with some emojis sprinkled in for flavor. And it was like, at the end of those days, I would go home and feel as exhausted as days when I would do a long form piece, probably less because at least I, you know, it's got a beginning, middle and end. This was just like, you know, a, a hundred sprints in one day. I'm saying that you're basically cranking out. You need to either tell a story or broadcast an emotion or a vibe yeah. over and over and over again with this tiny, tiny amount of space. So you're trying to basically do, um, you know, what was it? Like uh, the baby shoes story <laughs> 25 <laughs> times a day. Uh, I'm so sorry. Sometimes one of my favorite internet memes is takes is memification of the baby shoes story. And I, uh, one of them was, um, on, it was a comment on a YouTube video where a guy was canoeing and was charged by a bull alligator. And the, his version of it was, uh, fishing canoe, uh, never used one small brown stain. <laughs> That's a pretty good take on it. Pretty good. Anyway, yeah. but you know, I mean, this is, uh, for, for those who don't know, uh, uh, Ernest Hemingway was in a competition to write the saddest, sh- was it the saddest shortest word or the saddest word in, or the saddest story in less than so, so many words. But anyway, the, the, uh, the thing that he came up with is, uh, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. Uh, and it's pretty fucking sad. He nailed it. That's that old drunkard really knows what he was doing. Is freaking genius. Genius. It's absolute genius. Uh, but, uh, he was not paid by the word. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, if you ever wonder why Charles Dickens and like Victor Hugo and that particular generation of writers were that florid, and I don't yeah. mind it. Uh, it's because I do. They, it was both serialized mm. and they were paid by the word. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, it's like uh, undergrads trying to crank out a 20-page paper. <laughs> In some words of some philosophers who might say. (laughs) Yeah. There's this strange life cycle. It's like the Sphinx's riddle, except for um, (laughs) education, like writing as your education progresses. At first, you're like, how can I possibly write this much? (laughs) How can I possibly crank out, you know, 20 pages? And then. At, at some point you cross over into how can I possibly limit myself to 20 pages? <laughs> this is why I suck at Twitter, by the way. Um, also, can I just say that I also just invoked the riddle of the Sphinx today? Can really? I? Yes. Uh, what I was going to say was like the way that I use social media a lot of times is like either as like a writing warm up or like writing and being verbal for me is, uh, like an engine unto itself, the same way that you like prime, you know, you prime a mower with three pumps of gasoline, you pull on the cord. That's a lot of what I use social media for either like narrative building or like making a joke or like seeing kind of where Mm -hmm. people are at and like what's funny. Um, And I was making, I was joking because a friend of mine was asking me uh, about why I don't ever recommend chain restaurants. (laughs) The status that I put up as a writing exercise was, 
Why would I go to fucking Bonefish Grill to pay the same amount of money for a poor imitation of Inferno Room food or Maggiano's when I have Iarias? Why would anyone in their right mind with these few fleeting seconds on a burning, entropic, statistically impossible, water-filled Earth and all the galaxies of the universe in the precious and precarious sensate human body smack in the middle of the riddle of the Sphinx, two-legged twilight of existence, existence eat frozen factory lasagna <laughs> it is just the world's most complex and expensive instacart order and i was born on a tuesday but not last tuesday and i may die next tuesday and not one day in between we'll see a bite of cisco food dignified by a farce of a cloth napkin cross my lips at 16 plus dollars a serving this is my soapbox small and flimsy as it is like standing on a stack of empty frozen lasagna cartons outside a fake fancy chain restaurant. And why do I do this? Because uh, it's, first of all, it's fun and it's funny, but like what I'm really doing there is I am priming mm -hmm. my, that part of my brain before I actually use it for something purposeful. And what I'm about to do when we get off the phone here is write a bunch of social media captions for the summer. And it's a wonderful practice too. Yeah. Because you can then gauge response exactly you can gauge how that went over which parts went uh, went well it's it's workshopping yep <laughs> uh, it's workshopping your own voice and this is something <laughs> yeah. that like i spent as a writer like 15 years clearing my throat essentially <laughs> <laughs> who, who can you ask can i ask you so the the way that every writer establishes a style is you imitate two or three people and you kind of synthesize them into your own voice. And who are your sort of writing writing idols? So I try to get the storytelling ability of Malcolm Gladwell mm, awesome. uh, in with the sort of like, I guess the clarity of, I, uh, yeah, I would say, at least for my nonfiction, right? I really aim to tell stories like Malcolm Gladwell. And then I try to integrate like the poetry and the beauty of uh, Galway Kinnell, I guess, mm. um, uh, American uh, poet. And then, but at the same time, the sort of self-deprecatingness, the lack of self-seriousness <laughs> of... Uh, prime essay writing David Foster Wallace. Yes! I knew you were going to say that as soon as you started up. I was like, here we go. Give me some lobster, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and DFW was a horrible human being, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like he was a real piece of shit. Yeah. But, but so was his... Chris Hitchens, and I own several of his uh, essays in hardback. Well, Chris Hitchens is one of the greatest polemicists of all time. Of course. He was um... a horrible, horrible, sexist piece of trash. And... His writing is some of the most inspiring in, in terms of like, in terms of moving people to action or changing their mm -hmm. mind that you can ever get, you know? Yeah, he was able to evoke emotion in a way that almost no one else can about topics that often would not always seem necessarily emotional. Yeah. Uh, and he was also a good example of being part of high society and at the same time maintaining a healthy skepticism yeah. <laughs> of any, yeah. anyone, even himself. Yeah. Um, but the thing that I, I tried to take from DFW is the self, the understanding that we're trying to be sincere and trying to tell the truth and recognizing at the same time that we're limited beings with limited cognition and we are incapable of telling exact truths. So we just are sort of approximating it and doing the best that we can. And writing is more 
horseshoes and hand grenades um, <laughs> than anything else. That you're always trying to find the exact right word, but there isn't an exact right word. They're a yep. constellation of them. So you just need to sort of pick the one that you think uh, sheds the light that you want to shed. And knowing that someone's going to hate it, but that's okay. And Ugh. they might be right, but you just do the best you can. Perfect. Honestly. And I will say, like, some of the best, even though I hated my, I, I really did hate my English teacher, but what he did for us was he made us really aware of the music and rhythm of language in a way that our writing, alongside teaching us how to make a, uh, you know, a convincing argument, but like, more importantly, like, you know, his thing was like, no matter how good you are at setting up and supporting an argument, if it sucks to listen to and it's boring and it, you know, it just like doesn't paint any picture and it makes people feel nothing, then like that effort is not for nothing. But I mean, it just won't be as moving as if it's kind of nice to listen to and a well-written thing is nice to listen to. And you should always keep that in mind. That's a really good point. I oh. The Red Hot Chili Peppers are a great example of that. I know this is a strange place <laughs> to invoke the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but their words are nonsense. Their lyrics are nonsense. Yep. People are always trying to read into it, into them, some grand meaning. But, you know, they've admitted that they're there more for the way that they feel and sound oh. than their actual, like, um, semantic meaning. Don't stop addicted to the shindig. Like, yeah. <laughs> just say it with your mind. You're doing, you know, those, like, little tongue touches to the front of your mouth and it's just fun to say and it's like uh uh what was it uh steve miller's you know i speak of the pompatus of love which pompatus is not a word but boy it sounds great it sounds great it sounds like beating a um sounds like kind of like beating a bass drum when you say it you know yeah and the way it feels it's like why pomplamousse is still my favorite <laughs> word in french uh, which is grapefruit by the way yep. not because of its grand meaning just because it's silly and it feels great in the mouth yep uh and it's a fun thing to say um there's a you can say it a ton of different ways and they all feel kind of different <laughs> um and often we're this is not to denigrate you know more utilitarian writing like, you know, a technical manual is going to be sure. different. Um, but when you're trying to, even in a legal brief, move someone, and if you read a lot of legal briefs, you start to realize how much of what's going into it, like Scalia's opinions, how much of it is about style. Yes. In Scalia's fact, that was... opinions are fucking awful substantively. They make no sense. But stylistically, he is mm, he's a master. I was just going to say, I know so many people who are liberal as fuck, right? And like, like would piss on Scalia's grave given half a chance, but are like, damn, those decisions though, like it's really a, it's really a clinic on moving legal writing, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, on rhetoric. Yeah. On rhetoric. And these are all things that I was training to do when I was writing. <laughs> so I seriously began writing in the summer after seventh grade mm -hmm. i was at um uh no actually yeah that's true but the first time i had an epiphany of how communal writing could be was summer after ninth grade i was at uh williams college for a creative writing course i had taken mm -hmm. other ones before but this one we didn't do it in a classroom. We always would go to the local coffee shop nearby mm. because it was early in the morning and I'd get a chai and a bear claw. <laughs> and the first 15 minutes of class would involve us 
taking a a prompt or a quote and then just sort of brainstorming off of it, writing something for 15 minutes that we would never share. It was just to sort of get us warmed up. But every time I sit down to write now, I can like taste chai and like smell the bear claw. (laughs) I, it, it transports me back to that place. Um, So and often if I'm not fe- – if I'm having writer's block or something like that, I will go to a coffee shop. Yeah. Uh, and there, it just loosens or unlocks some door inside of me because that's – it's state-based learning, I guess. Because yeah. that's where I learned first what – where my creativity sort of lived. Oh, it's like uh, – it's like, you know, for the same reason that like Okay, so I went and changed my pants before we sat down to this, right? Because I was wearing uh, my yoga pants that I was doing yard work in. They got some mud on them. They're kind of wet. And and they're also my yard work pants. Like, when I put them on, my brain is like, yes, let's dig some roots. And when I take them off, it's like, all right, it's time to do something else. And the same happens with creativity. And what's so funny is, like, People who don't have this love to make fun of our stupid rituals, right? They love to like laugh at us with our like special mug or our, you know, chair that we sit in in a weird way or whatever. But I need that stuff. And when I have it, it's magic, baby. You know what I mean? It's just like it's the the output is sublime. I have people who say. Like, I was a staff writer for years at a local paper, and then I moved on to other projects, obviously. And people would say, like, I can tell immediately when you are the writer behind, you know, the organic content of this brand or whatever. I I know your style. And it's like, for years, you just sort of throw shit at the wall and whatever sticks and comes, you know, peels off. And then that's your style. And for me, I always um, imitated, you know, Drew Magary from uh, Deadspin. That is a very familiar name. He writes some of the funniest shit I have ever written or re- read in my entire life. Um, okay, wait. Let me. Can I just? Can I hit you with a little Drew? Yeah, sure. Also, I feel like an asshole. I forgot to ask you your three your <laughs> your people that you imitate. So please go ahead. Oh wait, yes. Let me hold on. Uh... <laughs> okay, so this is on Defector.com. This is uh, uh, COVID nineteen, the Drew Magary review. After spending two years quarantining, masking, social distancing, sorry, it got to pop up, of course, social distancing, waiting to get vaccinated, getting vaccinated, waiting to get vaccinated again, and so forth, I finally got COVID-19. Finally got to see what everyone was talking about. I got my ticket for a midnight showing of COVID last Friday night. It came on like the common cold, not nothing terribly original. I thought it was the common cold. Then on the second night, I got a a bunch of weird pain in my hands, my precious hands. And I thought to myself, I know what the fuck this is. I ran downstairs at 5 a.m. and gave myself a rapid test, and the positive stripe showed up within seconds. It was a fat stripe. Emphatic. The testing stick may as well have said, You have COVID! to me out loud. (laughs) My viral load was bigger than a Miles Teller hot tub party. Truly some impressive shit. But how was the virus itself? Well, now that I'm back to 100%, I'd like to give you, the reader at home, my full evaluation. Let's go! 
Sore throat. Very rude sore throat. Hurt to swallow. Hurt to think about swallowing. I picture the back of my throat as a giant red welch, growing redder than a Kennedy if I dare to piss it off. But hey, I can still breathe, and I know that's not always the case with this particular ailment. As my friend said of getting COVID after vaccination, it's interesting getting it after all this time. Like meeting a much lesser version of the devil, and thank God you didn't meet the real guy. <laughs> Suffering level. Nine spike proteins out of ten. You get the idea. <laughs> that's fantastic. Just the, the fact really that fantastic. we can all we can have fun with language. I, I felt really empowered by this idea because I grew up in a very um, sort of prim and proper, if you will, uh, stratum of society. Um, I felt really empowered by <laughs> by this medium in which I could cuss, but also you could not tell me because the the whole thing was like, oh, when you're cut when you cuss, it's low class, and I was like. Listen here, I will I will come at you with all my fucks and my riddle of the Sphinx and my Herodotus quotes and my references to the Iliad, and you will have to respect me. <laughs> also, swearing is incredibly useful. It is. I don't think there's anything low class about it. Actually, quite the opposite. Um, that I think that anybody who doesn't swear is missing out on how fantastically powerful and useful they are as words. Well, and it's like, uh, you know, people are like, um, gold leaf is tacky. And it's like, um, hello, would you like to meet my good friend Gustav Klimt? Like, would you like to meet uh, any of the artists from uh, ancient Chinese dynasties who, <laughs> like, listen, it's all about the application, man. Like, don't come at me with prescriptive broad statements. I'm not here for it in any way. It just means that they're not creative enough to find ways to make it classy. Thank you. Uh- <laughs> So who else have you been trying to, did you integrate to find Um, your voice? I loved, like part of my, part of my feminist education was like realizing how much of my like aversion to girly, like, you know, um, um, uh, what's the word? you know, youth books, uh, YA, a lot of like my aversion Mm. to like YA or doing like, female centric stories was just internalized misogyny so i you know started imitating uh like megan mccafferty who's like a um ya writer but writes about this sort of young woman's experience in this like really beautiful and authentic way that is not condescending to young women mm-hmm. um and uh i'm really inspired i love jennifer egan have you ever read a changed man no it's uh it's great. It's about uh it's about a recovering quote unquote um uh Nazi, neo-Nazi who comes to like learn from a uh Holocaust survivor and other things happen. Moving on, but it's it's full of a lot of things and she's um a great writer in terms of just like emotional intimacy. Same thing with Mary Carr. Have you ever read uh, Liars Club or she wrote my favorite poem of all time which is called The Voice of God. Uh, the last line of which is, uh, yes. put, put down that gun, you need a sandwich. Yes. Mm-hmm. I would like to get tattooed down my forearm. Uh, and uh, my probably my last favorite one is T.C. Boyle. Have you ever read T.C. Boyle? No. Um, kind of a weird dude. He's from California. And he wrote one of my favorite books of all time, which is called The Tortilla Curtain. And it's uh, contrasts sort of clueless, middle class, white what we would now call woke couple like we recycle we drive our prius but like we are utterly uninterested and ignorant of 
the immigrants that are working right outside of our house and we don't care about them. We don't know about them. We know nothing about their struggle, but boy, we love to congratulate ourselves about what good people we are, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's great. And it's, it's, he does a really good job of getting inside the, the feelings of insufferable white people in a way that's not cartoonish, where it's just like a way of writing from the perspective of a privileged person and making fun of them without, robbing them of dignity i guess does that make sense mm. yeah that does make sense i love that yeah anyway that is hard to do too it's very hard to do and the thing with tc Boyle's stuff that is so good for young writers that i would really encourage you to read is that there's a profound emotional intimacy within the omniscient narrators narrators uh pov inside their brain i guess does mm-hmm. that make sense like yeah that does make sense and th- this is so interesting to me that there are a lot of people are probably like why are we talking about authors right <laughs> and like when we're talking when we're thinking about you know your business or my or, or, or my work in the law but i don't know have you uh read gideon the ninth by tamsin Mir? i have not so these are it's a new series um it the first one gideon the ninth came out in 2019 and the sort of like a book jacket or the way that people generally describe it is that it's like about lesbian space necromancers. Well, sure. That's the, that's the elevator pitch, right? Yeah, exactly. But what it is, is that it's a combination of like old Lovecraftian horror with like updated contemporary horror and awesome. like internet slang ish. Nice. Um, and then I guess another way to put it is that then also like sort of uh, a parlor romance. Um, yep. So it has a lot of aspects of like old Gothic writing um, as you would expect with ne- necromancers and then sort of YA elements with sort of with like the, the romances among the various lesbian necromancers. Yeah. And it's also set in space. So it's sci-fi, but it also has all this like, internal slang and the characters are constantly moving from sort of joking and fucking with each other that way to like super serious uh you know cosmic horror shit yeah um and what it's a master class in is combining things that seem like they don't go together Mm. and just being so freaking good at shifting tones and making the world feel lived in and the characters feel like real people that you don't care that you just go along with it. And I know that I'm not the target audience, Yes, but I fucking loved it anyway. Anyway, (laughs) it's amazing. And it taught me a lot about shifting tones within pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, To to your point about why we're talking about authors, which is um, ironically, the most useful information that I ever got um, that prepared me for this moment was when I was working as, you know, slinging makeup at Sephora after I graduated with a double honors degree, just feeling like a total piece of shit about it. But what I learned from that is through Sephora, uh, which is a great job if you ever need just like a shitty counter job, it's pretty awesome actually, but they have all these reps that come in and when they do product education, they're really long flowery, like they're storytellers, right? Like it's like you go back to the back of the store and this like beautiful person a man, woman, or whoever in between is going to tell you this dazzling story about this brand. And then they're going to spray you with something that smells good. And Mm -hmm. 
it's magical. And then you, it makes it so easy to go out and sell it to customers because you have this whole great big story that you can call on. Um, and that, more than anything, informed the way I market my product. And, and I would argue successfully market my product where we're telling a story about why we do the things that we do, right? So it sounds so goofy, but I have this long list. I have this long list of like, you know, social topics, but one of them is glass bottles. And it's like, I use glass bottles because it's the glass is the most easily recyclable substance on earth. Like it doesn't get sprayed with any dye. It, you can just burn the label right off of it. It doesn't matter. You can recycle it and it's heavy and it costs me extra to ship, but it matters to me that my hero product be in a very recyclable bottle. That's a great story. Mm -hmm. I've written that story like 40 different times yeah. on different <laughs> slides on later posts, but you know, that is a story where depending on how you write it, you know, uh, and that's my whole jam that is moves customers to buy. And also there's a reason why people move, at least like when you're in a good, like let's say you're in a nice restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. They don't put little flimsy, let's say you're at a nice Italian restaurant. They don't put the olive oil in a little flimsy squirt bottle. Yep. They put it in this beautiful glass vessel. That's heavy, right? That's like heavy because the act of pouring out something Pouring something from a nice vessel is just gorgeous and lovely and makes you feel in contact with the food yep. in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. And I, I would say as someone who's, you know, who, who cooks is that the, the glass bottles make you feel nice. They make yep. you feel good when you're cooking because you don't, you're not just like, you know that you're not making rice aroni. Yes, that was that was the other part of it that was really, really important to me is I knew it had to be to cover its costs. It has to be a high dollar product, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're going to pay extra, it should feel really substantive in your hand when you go to put it in your bag or you go to put it in your pocket or whatever. It shouldn't feel like you can't not notice it being on your person. Mm -hmm. And I wanted people to have that experience every single time they pick it up. And, every, and there's something already kind of sensual and heavy about honey. That's right. Right. So you're leaning into that. And this is what we're talking about, like creativity and business, that yeah. if you were just crunching numbers, you're like, well, I could save this number of cents per thing. And, you know, but the answer is that that's not how your customer will experience it. Yeah. And if you want to be successful and have people continue to interact with your product, want it to show it off to other people. And I show off you know, the product, you know, Scorpion Honey to other people is why <laughs> I you. I share it with so many people is that it's just a lovely product to use. And I don't just mean in terms of taste, because it tastes awesome. But be, it but while you're cooking, while you're applying it, it feels nice. Feels nice. It has this beautiful color, right? It has like this kind of jewel tone to it. Um, another person I, there's a woman here locally, Brittany Baxter, who runs uh, Eat Surreal. And she is another, She to me, she's a really great example of like creativity coming through in, in a kind of a new way, which her setup at the farmer's market is really small uh, because her product essentially lives in coolers and coolers are not very sexy. So like, don't make them a focal point, which has this little tiny counter uh, that's up at like bar height and uh, all of her product, all of her branding is yellow. So it's just impossible to miss, right? You know mm -hmm. exactly from from all the way across Garfield Park. You can look at just the array of people setting up and tell that she's going to be there. And she makes this vegan cheese product. That's, I mean, she makes a bunch of vegan like salads, like just like things that are delicious on crackers, uh, and they're so good. They're like nut free, gluten free, blah blah blah. But 
you know, if that's something that you need, she, she has this awesome niche audience of people who need nut-free, soy-free, blah, 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 blah people, which is awesome. Those people can tell from half a mile away whether or not they're going to be able to find the thing mm-hmm. that they want. And, you know, I mean, these are the little tiny micro decisions that make the difference between making a bunch of money, which I'm pretty sure she has, uh, <laughs> and, you know, having kind of a floundering mom and pop business. There's this sort of... <laughs> There's this funny thing where people talk about, you know, you know, form over substance um, or form over function or, you know, how it's important that, uh, you know, real serious people don't care about these things. Yeah. But what, what's funny is that, you know, these real serious lawyers wear suits. Yeah. 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 And they wear very well tailored suits. <laughs> yes. That they, whether or not they recognize that they're putting on a performance and they're marketing themselves. They're right. doing it in a way that's conventional and easy and like has is well trod territory. But that's also part of the story that they're telling. Um, that from the way that they knot their tie, maybe they do it the exact same way everyone else does, <laughs> or the way their dad taught them, or whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> while the younger, you know, associate attorneys might have skinny ties or whatever, but again, they're transmitting that they're young and they're hip and whatever. But we do that. There's this. Uh, for those who don't, who who didn't take performance or didn't study performance or anthropology, there's this great um, uh, 20th century scholar called Irving Goffman mm. wrote the performance of self in everyday life, <laughs> and it was a revelatory book for me when I read it in sophomore year of college. Yeah, that uh, much to my perpetual embarrassment now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, at that point, was wearing a lot of Hawaiian shirts and um, uh, lined khakis to keep me warm because it was very, very cold in New Hampshire. This is a terrible way to dress because it doesn't (laughs) tell any coherent story other than your mom dressed you your entire life before this. And now that you're free, you don't know how to dress yourself. That's the story that it tells. But I thought that I was projecting some sort of like naive authenticity, right? <laughs> but what Goffman really makes clear is that the authentic self is not one immutable thing. Yep. But we're not like, we're not like, um, I don't know, it's because I'm looking at it right now. We're not like a mop where <laughs> it's like very clear and obvious. It has like a very clear function. It gives one performance. Mm. Instead, we're more like prisms. In which that we, if you rotate us, we give off different shapes, colors, mm. none of which are inauthentic. They're all authentically part of us. Yeah. And the the classic example is like, do you interact with your friends the same way you do with your grandmother? <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. In one, you're performing friend, and the other, you're performing grand- grandchild. Yeah, grandchild. Yeah. yeah. These are not inauthentic. They're both very authentic performances. <laughs> but they're very different from each other. And learning to control right my the way the the, the performances we give isn't an inauthentic thing. Yeah. It instead is simply giving the part of ourselves that is the most suited to the situation and showing that. Um, well, it's the way that a lot of people are like, if you can't handle me at my best, at my worst, you can't handle me at my best. You don't deserve <laughs> me at my best or whatever. I'm just like, but if all you're giving the person is your worst, then what, what, what's going on with you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the other, the other thing I think sometimes with regard to that whole performance and performing different versions of yourself, like there, you are, of course you are still yourself, but I think 
going from the the unsteady bridge from mm -hmm. your birth until becoming a self-actualized adult is the synthesis of performances on the fringes maybe like which you know you you might start off maybe not cussing with your grandma but then you become an adult and you get to know your grandma as a as a whole real person who also cusses and maybe drinks gin sometimes and then maybe you can cuss around your grandma and drink some gin with your grandma right and this is uh, we're extending this metaphor beyond what I mean, but you know, like I, I, in terms of being a creative person, like we were talking about before, with like what you need, right? Like the working world as we've known it for 50, 60, 70 years is not very conducive to creative output at all. Um, <laughs> one time, one time I interviewed at this, uh, um, creative agency at this ad agency basically that was smack dab in the middle of downtown i know their rent was bonkers and uh when i went in there it was dead silent it was kind of dark uh and when i went to the interview i was like so what's the like what's the work from home vibe like how much you know are you allowing people to like you know not perform essentially you know the role of worker for their co-workers and the boss was like, oh, we're a service. So we're open from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And you will be here at your desk from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. And I was like, wow. <laughs> and you expect creative people to like deliver a consistently awesome brand new like fucking trumpet solo, goddamn jazz solo every day and just be <laughs> cannonball Adderley every minute of every day. After being in their cubicle farm yeah. for nine <laughs> hours, are you shitting me? And I, before they even responded to me, I was like, "Hey, I, you know, I really appreciate your time. I don't think this opportunity is for me." It was just like, absolutely not. But I mean, that's one of those. That is insane to me. That is mm -hmm. insane. That is a literal creative profession, right? There's nothing kind of more high dollar creative professional you can be than you know somebody who makes high dollar ad campaigns and that <laughs> is such a spit in the face it's such a mm -hmm. hocked loogie in the face of their most valuable creators there it, that cracks me up because it so at my previous job well with an abusive uh work situation mm. um at one point my abusive boss called me in and said you know i just don't feel like you're a team player <laughs> and i said and, and that i Luckily, I was wearing a mask, so he couldn't see that I was like trying to not laugh. Mm. Um, but I just said very plainly to him is that like I don't think that's widely held in the office. <laughs> and I think sometimes you mistake obedience with um, cooperation. Ding, ding, ding. And I will give you cooperation, but I will not give you obedience. Because you're not a dog or well, because, a trained monkey. Because I was hired to have a mind of my own, to be creative and produce yes. ideas that other people couldn't produce, yes. that he couldn't produce. And there were times when then there started getting more and more uh, managerial oversight uh, as things went on. And then I had someone come to me as like, well, you need to just check in with me uh, every single, uh, every time you make a decision or you, there's a new thing. And I'm like, I am constantly playing with seven or eight different versions and when I feel like I've decided which one is right, I will then clue you in on sh and share it with you. Mm. But if I have to check in with you as I make every decision in the process, I will not be able to work. Like I will spend all my time checking in with you 
instead of spending time actually working. And this cracked me up when then as they got more levels, there there turned out I had six people I needed to report to eventually. This is And he said, Well, why don't you just have a meeting with each of them every day? Oh my god. Just you describing the first layer of that happening made like a tension headache form mm-hmm. on the back of my neck. Yeah, and and I'm like, then I'd spend all my time meeting with people to, talking about what I'm doing rather than doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. And I realized that, yes, and he just expected me to do the actual work when I got home, basically. Yep. Um, and I feel like there are a lot of jobs – during the pandemic, a lot of people discovered that their jobs were suddenly just to go to meetings. And their question was, well, when am I <laughs> supposed to get work done? And they're just like, oh, you're supposed to get work done either – in your own time or yeah. your work was actually just the meetings. Yeah. And that I think is a wholly depressing thing to learn and talk about crushing creativity yeah. is that like, I think that uh, when you're, I think that for, especially for people who aren't creative, do not think of themselves as creative. Um, they like to do things that other people have done. Mm-hmm. So it's easy because they have a blueprint or a roadmap to follow. Yeah. It's easier. And they don't understand why you would try 35 different ways or 35 <laughs> different bottles when Sriracha has a plastic bottle. Um, so why don't, and, and you know, and they're spicy. So why don't you just have a plastic bottle too? Problem solved. Oh my God. Back when I worked in publishing, which is probably the best use of my creative energy that I've ever had. And I had just an awesome editorial team. I just had the best. I worked with the smartest, funniest people who the reason that we that we put out so much good content during that time was so in, in workshopping, you know, the only way that you're successful in workshopping or pitch meetings or editorials is if you always maintain that the goal is the best possible product. Right. Mm-hmm. And we would toss out around ideas and you could tell people really cared about some of their ideas, but they just weren't the best ideas. And it was, you know, you keep talking and you keep talking and you keep talking until, until the best idea obviates itself. And uh, one of the things that we did was um, we were making a joke. We started joking around the office about the radical gay agenda um, and how funny it would be if like we made essentially like Soviet propaganda posters for our pride month issues. Um, and, we were laughing about it and like the joke would not go away. It was so funny and it got kind of funnier and developed over time. And, and Ed Wank, my managing editor was like, yeah, I think we have to make this the cover. I think we have to ditch the idea that we had before and we have to make this the cover. And we ended up as an editorial team, we won an alternative news media award for it. Um, and in that process, you learned there are, so there's like two different kinds of graphic designers. There are people who learned that this will be a, high dollar, high value skill to have in the late 90s. And they just decided like, fine, graphic (laughs) designer, whatever. And then everybody else is a designer, right? They're a designer Mm -hmm. and they would have become an architect or they would have become a whatever because they love to make beautiful things. And (laughs) sometimes you get the on rails designer and then you're like, listen, I'm going to give you A, B, C, D or E. And these are the choices that I have. But once in a while, you get the designer and they're like, what do you, what's the story we're telling with this? Mm-hmm. And it makes your heart beat so fast because you're like, are we going to tell a visual and linguistic story <laughs> at the same time and work together? Oh, this is so exciting. And you know, I love, I love this story. I love this because I think that 
you, the way that you're putting it, like it just becomes obvious what the best idea is. Yeah. And then also it becomes obvious to you the people who are able to um, pivot from what they had in their heart set on immediately yeah. to like then just vibing with the thing that actually is the best. Oh, those are, listen, all those people, best coworkers, best sex partners, best creative partners, best business partners. Like you need someone who is willing to abandon this thing that they love and care about, but because you need to have somebody who still values their own ideas and values their input and feels confident in their input, but is willing to contribute to a better idea rather than die on one <laughs> stupid hill, you know? There is this, uh, so uh, this is in a totally different arena, but so I was I was working in a class where we were teaching um, judges how to make lesson plans and then <laughs> awesome. create, create presentations, <laughs> right? And we did a feedback session where we'd break into small groups and then we would, re- we would re- review each other's work and then give feedback and suggestions okay. about how to improve the lessons, make them more engaging. And there's a, it's both an art and a science. There are certain things that always do better than others. Um, but at the same time, there is a creative aspect of finding fun and interesting ways of presenting them. Like interactivity yeah. is always good. Right. And, <laughs> but there are a lot of ways to be interactive. They're like the raise your hands if you, which is not really interactive, but it's it's lazy and it's easy and you see people go there. Yeah. But it's always the the people who take the feedback seriously. Yeah. And then not just the, oh, you need more interaction, but really parses down like what kind of interaction are you talking about? Tries a different versions, workshops a couple, and then decides on it and then when they give the lesson, you can tell that they've practiced it a bunch of times. Yeah. Those are the people you know who are going to be the best because they are really listening. Yes. And I think that is another key portion of creativity is the listening, like not mm-hmm. in a judgmental or like defensive way, but listening to what how other people react yeah. to what you're doing. And, and believing, you know, in the non-creative world – being the best is a matter of rank, right? It is a it is a not is a completely non-subjective object it's a completely objective <laughs> like mark, right? Like you you run a certain time, you run a certain distance in a certain time or whatever. And the difference between that and a creative person is you have to you're always in this language loop with other people, right? You're either in it with your audience, uh, you know, I would say that when I was a staff writer, my feedback loop was first with my editorial team, and then it, it goes out and you open that loop up to your audience, your readers. And some of the best moments we had when we, when I first learned about like what, you know, when you go through a college writing program and you go through workshopping for the first time and you immediately, there are truly only two types of people, which is like people who really want to get better and want to listen to get better and people who really don't. They kind of think mm-hmm. it's kind of nailed it. Kind of nailed it. Got it in one. It was, yeah, it's, I was going to say, it's already perfect. It's already perfect. <laughs> they got it in one. No need to edit. No edits, no notes. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite people that I wrote alongside with is a guy named Joe Pittman who's still around and is still like, uh, you know, a dad and have, you know, being, being a guy. Uh, and he wrote 
all these hysterical essays about doing backyard wrestling with his brothers. He was really into pro wrestling. He was himself like an amateur pro wrestler. You know, he's just like, he's built like an Olympian, you know what I mean? But he's so funny and self-effacing. And, and he think the first couple essays that he wrote was just like, you know, write something. They were like, write something that, you know, and he is a brilliant comedy writer. And I don't think that he really understood how funny he was until he got in a room full of people who don't know him from Dick. You know, he was he was a cool guy at his school. You know what I mean? He was like mm-hmm. athlete, cool guy. We don't know shit about Joe Pittman. And he was hilarious. It was so funny. And it was a story not about wrestling. It was a story about being a kid. It was a story about like mm-hmm. being a little boy in the country. And it was beautiful and pure and emotional and hilarious. Uh, but. And, and as he, you know, Joe Pittman, the uh, big, goofy ath- athlete dude, engaged with this feedback process, these essays went from really funny out, out the gate to, like, you falling out of your chair, rolling on the floor, crying because they're just so beautiful and wholesome and sweet. And, I mean, like, I think once you taste the power of, like, a group of people who want to help you change your output to something that's good from from good to just like show stoppingly amazing you get a taste of that and it's you'll never find anything that's as satisfying as that that i hey joe Pittman, you're amazing that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> because that's the exact kind of that, that's the exact kind of situation that fosters creativity yeah that there is always like I have people all the time. Well, that wasn't my intent or the, or people <laughs> saying, well, what was the author's original intent? I'm like, it doesn't really matter. Yep. What matters is how it is received, how it comes across the response it garners. Yeah. Um, that I'm sure Hannah Gadsby was both sort of, you know, shocked, surprised and, and a little dismayed at the success of Nanette, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think, her I think sort we of, all were. Yeah, and she was going to leave comedy, but then Nanette blew up. She's like, well, you can't leave now, you know? (laughs) Um, And her intent wasn't to stay in comedy. Her intent was actually to leave. Uh, But she, in fact, basically kick-started or created room for this whole new kind of comedy. Yeah. And that was, I don't think, was her intention. She was meaning (laughs) to just deconstruct and sort of like hold to the fire. Nanette Um, Nanette feels like an exit interview from comedy. I mean, it really does. And this this is what always gets me. And or people who are just like, well, I, I wrote this to be I, I didn't write that. I didn't mean that as a joke. I'm like, but it's funny. It's hilarious. Like <laughs> But sometimes not in a good way. Sometimes it's funny because it's terrible, but sometimes it's funny just because it's funny. <laughs> sometimes also to me that is to me that is one hundred percent the funniest jokes. Like that's why I love Barry. It's why I loved like Fleabag. It's why I love like some of the horror show of uh, that is it's always sunny in Philadelphia is like, like, can I tell my favorite story, which is the funniest thing that's ever happened to me? Uh, Okay. We got, we were visiting colleges and we went to Evanston, which my parents mistakenly thought was just like, you know, a nice Tony suburb. They, my dad left a bunch of expensive shit in the car. My mom was like, our car is going to get broken into and it's going to get stolen. He's like, we're in Evanston. Dot, dot, dot. Our car broken into, got, got broken into all of our shit got stolen. Right. Yeah. My dad is an angry man. It is not enjoyable to be around Dr. Richard Merle when he is having a bad day. And it was a bad day in our family that day. And 
We got a trash bag from the hotel we were staying at and taped it over the window called AAA, found a shop that would go take us on a Saturday. And we're driving down the road and the bag, as we increase in speed, you know, whips harder and harder and harder and harder and becomes louder and louder and louder. Like a windsock. Like a windsock. And it's of that kind of plastic that just is kind of like a quilt of candy wrappers. You know what I mean? It's Mm -hmm. just like, and, and we can't stand it. It's the only sound in the car. Everyone's dead silent. (laughs) Shit's tense. And my dad turns up the radio just to just cranks it to drown it out and the song that is playing is ain't nothing gonna break my stride ain't nothing gonna slow me down oh no i got to keep on moving and i cannot stifle myself though i try to stop laughing and by the end i am in tears i'm shaking so hard my sister is just like stop stop and i'm like i can't i can't it's like it's can't break my stride i can't like and it's still by far the single funniest moment of my entire life because it was my dad was on the edge of just absolutely exploding in a rage and Mm -hmm. Nothing nothing could have been funnier. It's proof that, like, if God exists, he is a comedian and, you know, he's a little heavy-handed with his metaphors, you know? Yeah. <laughs> just, a, just a little. A little on a the little, nose. A little on the nose. <laughs> I, I think another point is that, like, you never – when you're doing things, like, people are just, like, you know, you have to be intentional. I'm just, like <sighs> – there, there are inten- there are things that you can be intentional about, <laughs> but a lot of the time you just got to have to just – do live the thing, be in the moment, and you're not going to know why it's useful or helpful beforehand. <laughs> like, I'm sure when that was happening, you're just like, you know, this is going to make great podcasting material one day, <laughs> right? Or, or, you know, or, or the, the backyard wrestling is like, man, I'm going to base my entire, you know, burgeoning writing career yeah. on, on, the, on this backyard wrestling. Like, the people who do stuff like that are not funny <laughs> and they're not interesting. <laughs> They're just not. It's why Los Angeles is terrible. It's why it's awful. It's a city made of the funny guy from your office who everyone's like, this guy's hilarious. And he was like, I'm going to do this for work forever. And you're like, no, no, no. I, I, oh, there he goes. And he's got an apartment in Burbank. Okay. Yeah. But that's why the people like Mindy Kaling who are just like, (laughs) I'm going to go to Dartmouth. (laughs) Like, I'm going to be in the middle of fucking New Hampshire, you know? Um, you know, uh, and write and, and write a play with <laughs> about uh, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, and I'm going to play Ben Affleck. Like, <laughs> but that's why she's good, right? Is that she is actually interesting. Yeah. Um, and the people I know who are just like I should have been like people are told you should be a comedian, or the people like you know you should be a lawyer, like the K to JDs as they're called. <laughs> they are the worst. They're the fucking worst. And you're in law school with them, and all they care about is what the answer is for the test. All they care about is what the law is, not what the law should be. They don't want to, like, please, please do not burden me with the depth of this knowledge. Like, please no. And some of them grow out of it because they get into the actual law, and they're just like, what the fuck is this? (laughs) Some of them don't. Some of them continue to just treat facts and you know good things as sort of ancillary to just like you know win in their case um it's like sure i won this case for harvey weinstein but i won (laughs) you know and and 
you just realize that they're they're not like they don't understand like the thing is the question of what should the law be or is this the right outcome um <laughs> it never really crosses their mind <laughs> and then they wonder why no one wants to talk to them at dinner parties <laughs> or like why they have to make a ton of money to even get a date oh that's that's truly the dastardly end of like not a creative bone in your body and i will i truly contend that like creativity is more a measure of your flexibility and the interconnectedness of the things that you know and learn about and are curious about. And those people that you're talking about are just (laughs) incurious. You know what I mean? Like, it's not even like, uh, yeah, sometimes I'm kind of cool about fishing. No, they don't want to know anything. They don't want to be, like I said, they do not want to be burdened with depth of knowledge of anything. (laughs) It's why the American right has a comedy crisis. (laughs) It's hard to make a joke. When everyone already knows the punchline. Well, I'm surprised that you are not giving Steven Crowder uh, <laughs> more more credit here. Yeah, just a reminder, the punchline is, we hate gay people. Yeah, the punchline <laughs> is, I identify as an attack helicopter. Like, yeah. let me just spoil all transphobia jokes for you. Yeah. <laughs> the punchline is, Jesus is Lord and Savior. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, but... I'm sorry, it's like... The... There needs to be a sense of like ambiguity and endless possibility. And I think that is also, this is something, the the terrible, terrible, I think like almost like like the the, the totalitarian state of like excellence that like people are like, it's not worth doing if you can't do it well or you can't be the best. I'm Uh like, are you fucking kidding me? I think it's even worse than that. I think it's it's not worth doing if you can't profit off of it. Like, yeah, <clears throat> like having to explain to people why kids need arts, like because your brain has to do something else other than learn and get crammed with knowledge, like to oh. to be able to synthesize it. Or else you end up with Ben Carson, who can like <laughs> do neurosurgery, but thinks the pyramids are full of grain. It's still one of my favorite moments from that goddamn hellscape yeah. of a of an election year. Or you end up with Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, exactly. Right? I was just... Who, like, made a democracy doom machine, but, yes. like, is just like, well, too bad. <laughs> Can't and, imagine a world other otherwise. Uh, so my gentleman, my most <laughs> my most important gentleman friend, um, <clears throat> is uh, he invented a cool... He invented a really crucial piece of... Um, software capability that we all use pretty much every day if you use a word processor um, and kind of left Silicon Valley because of, you know, kind of (laughs) the repulsive nature of people who are brilliant but incurious. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. that creates a if, if all you know, if the only people you surround yourself with are people who understand achievement by shallow ranking, uh, profit, growth margins, stock price, whatever, then you end up with a world without feeling and, and a <laughs> a something that where your grandma used to play Farmville that ends up ending democracy in Myanmar. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> I So this is something I think about a lot in terms of my economic brain, is that there are certain types of activity in which it's really easy to privatize the gains, yeah. um, like stock trading or gambling. Yeah. Um, 
or you know the t- the tech companies, you know, stock IPOs and stuff like that. And then there are activities that are incredibly productive, but it is really really hard to privatize the gains from it, which is like <laughs> teaching yeah. or the arts or like m- mental health professionals, yeah. right? And what we do when we, when we have this monofocus on measuring the value of something by how much you personally can privatize the gain from it is that you actually wind up making society poor. Yes. And the reason is, is that generally societies get rich by doing activities that are positive sum, right? In which you create more value than you capture. So then you enrich all of society and not just yourself. The uh, libraries and ballet theaters named after rich people, etc. <laughs> but like, think of it this way: that it, let's say a teacher, um, we we were able to measure exactly how much of your salary <laughs> was because of this particular teacher contributing to your education, and they were able to capture one hundred percent of that profit. Be well, I mean, I would it wouldn't be cool. That sounds like a dystopian nightmare, but yeah. it would it would add a lot of visible value to things like teaching, right? Exactly. But note that it would actually impoverish the student. Yes. Yes. Right. And so this is, so you go, okay, uh, that's really hard to capture. So the exact value that the teacher is going in, we actually don't want to capture all of the value. Right. Um, And compare that to say stock trading where you make a bet and another person makes a bet and one of you wins or one of you loses. And then 100% of minus whatever the commission is, um, goes to one of you and the other person pays that amount, right? Yep. That is not creating excess value. It's just shifting value from one place to another. And yes, people can talk about price discovery or capitalizing companies. Yes, that's true for the initial offering, but note that companies don't get the additional money um, after they've issued the shares. Then it's just money sloshing around to the various holders. So yes, I understand that. Um, to all the people who finance bros out there who are just like, eh, you don't understand it. No, it's like, <laughs> no, 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 I get it. I'm talking about the trading, the stuff you actually make the money off of. And we're not even talking about derivatives and synthetic derivatives, right? When it gets increasingly Baroque. All of that is zero sum. None of that is positive sum. Yeah. And one of the reasons that, and yet we denigrate the people who are actually making our society rich, the people who are doing work that makes our society richer and they're not capturing all of it. Yep. And like, this can be as simple as, you know, listening to your friend's kid, right? Maybe yeah. that kid just needed that ear and that's going to be the thing that puts them in the right mental state. You don't know. And note that you're not going to charge for that. <laughs> you're not going to say, well, I really set Johnny on his way. And by the way, I demand 70% of his future earnings. Um, and thinking in these sort of zero-sum ways, I think sh- – and impoverishes us not just as people, but as a society, because we wind up spending too much time and energy focused. The best and brightest among us spend too much time focused on things that they can easily monetize as opposed to things that make societies worthwhile. Yeah. I, I, uh, if you're, if you're like me and you were raised by very pragmatic Republicans as a creative person and probably ended up in, in a, um, you know, commerce adjacent um, creative field, in my case, you know, writing and then copywriting and then some people get into graphic design or whatever. Like my buddy, Mark Alexander, uh, was in my <clears throat> program for recording industry studies and he cuts together concert promos for tour design. 
Um, but I think it's innate when you make those choices that you kind of wonder, like, what could life possibly have been like if I had just gone ahead and become like a potter, like the potter whose work that I love so much that like, I whenever she has a sale, you know, I try to get on her list and I miss it most of the time. Uh, because people love her work so much because she loves her work so much and has such a beautiful signature design that, uh, you know, it's like while she's alive and in her 20s or 30s, you know, it's already a collector's item. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard not to wonder when you've made that choice, you know, pragmatism over your creative dreams, uh, what could have been. And so I, I always say, like, if your dream is to be a potter or a sculptor or whatever, just go ahead and try to do that. If you mm -hmm. fuck it all up, you can go work in metal fabrication. Like, it's fine. <laughs> but, like, fuck it all up when you're 24 and your rent can be $500 a month and it doesn't fucking matter, you know? And why – and also think about – in a lot of – there's a lot of doom talk about automation and robots taking our jobs. Yeah. But one of the things, at least my hopeful view, is that we get a choice in what, what society comes from that sort of automated – um, economy. We could yeah. allow all of the gains from that to go to a small handful of people while the rest of us basically uh, work as an underclass to service the machines. <laughs> or we could spread the wealth that the machines do equitably yeah. and then that frees us up the time to do the things we actually want to do. This is why you know universal basic income in an automated world yeah. is considered utopian, but I mean like is actually sort of technologically achievable if we're not dumb about it. Yep. That you could be someone who you could work in whatever you want to do. You would have your your income and maybe you just want to really focus on I know my brother loves doing this. Like he serves as a mentor yeah. to uh adoptees, to younger yeah. adoptees. That like that work is intrinsically valuable to society, both socially and economically but like why not spend more time doing that if it brings meaning to your life or work as a potter or maybe take yep. care of your parents spend time with your friends make music yep um maybe the thing you really want to do and there are people out there that who really want to start a company go and do yep. that if it fails <laughs> it fails if it succeeds it succeeds great right but you're not going to wind up destitute on the street or with a private island either way yep. instead you actually let people choose to do the things that bring their lives meaning yeah and uh i think you'd be surprised at how many people when given the opportunity to do things that bring their give their lives meaning wind up making incredible stuff uh, i was just i you took the words out of my mouth this conversation always makes me think of my grandparents my mom's parents who you know, had an income, had a fixed income, however small it was, because my grandpa was in the, before it was the Air Force, but, you know, uh, had the GI Bill and he had some Social Security and then he had like a little pension from the company that he worked at. And in his older years, he was really into painting. My grandma and grandpa did slip casting. They have, uh, my mom still has this, the nativity scene that my grandma slip casted and um, they made all these really beautiful things that we treasure, of course, but more than that, like they provided this really wonderful example of like creative creativity and creation for creation's sake for the joy of it and being a whole person who, you know, finds value in these things because the joy is the joy is the value. Uh, and uh, 
but but they had that because they had that guaranteed income. That's like what they were able to do. And it made them a much more joyful people, you know? I see that with my mom too in her retirement, that my mom has took up painting. She was yeah. always interested in art, um, but she had sort of fallen away from it when she was working and she was raising kids. But is she going to be the greatest artist in the history of all of art? No, but it doesn't matter because everyone around her loves it. She loves it. Um, the time it gives her, you know, my, the same way my aunt knits constantly. Everyone's yep. like, you're such, you make these amazing patterns. Why don't you sell them? And there have been some companies that have approached her about her yeah. stuff and been like, and she said, no, because I don't want to make it a business because then it's not fun. Yep. <laughs> and maybe someone else goes, oh, that's amazing. And that's what they want to do for fun. But she has the choice. Yep. And I think that ultimately is that what creativity gives you, at least my uh, my the way that I think about creativity, is that it gives me the opportunity to do or not do things, to make or not make things. Yep. And we want a society, at least I want a society, in which people can actually spend time on the things that are meaningful to them. And I'm lucky enough. I get to walk away from that shit job and work on things that I actually want to do yeah. that are meaningful to me because I have the generational wealth and the cultural capital and the education to do that. Yep. The but other, it shouldn't just be me. It, it sh- and it shouldn't be something that you have to earn, right? Yeah. Like it shouldn't be a reward for having, you know, put in your certain amount of capitalistic dues to be allowed that, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I hope that the other thing that I think that you should always make room for, and this is like really essential to the professional creativity conversation that we talked about right when we started this off, which was my metaphor about you know, working as a professional creative, when you love something, when you love visual art or when you love, you know, whatever is it does, it will scuff it up a little bit. It will scuff up your pure affection for it. And (laughs) you really have to emotionally prepare yourself for what it means to become, for example, a professional illustrator with a deadline. Like, you're going to turn in some shit and you're going to turn in some stuff you're not proud of and you're going to turn in some stuff that other people won't like and you have to fucking hear about it and that's trash. <laughs> and it's worse when people have to tell you it's bad and you know it's bad because you just had to get something done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, um, I don't know. There's something really to be said for the you know, the proverbial calluses that form on uh, your capacity to find the best thing by going through that process. And I think while that wasn't a super easy thing to deal with all the time, what it yielded for me was like a better overall sense of uh, creative resilience. Do you know what I mean? But you just, I mean, it is, it's an emotional process and you have to be prepared for how much it's going to fucking hurt. It's it's strange because that's sort of been my experience, was my experience as a kid with sports. Mm, yeah. That you get like instant feedback if the thing that you're doing is working or not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but it's also creative because you have a certain body and what works for you that might not necessarily work for someone else and vice right. versa. So you need to come up with solutions using the tools that you have. Um, and not taking it personally. And yep. not internalizing my body is bad because I can't do X, Y, and Z, but instead focusing on what your body can do and ways to maximize um, its output and its effectiveness from there. And knowing that you're going to fail constantly, that you're going <laughs> to fail repeatedly over and over again, 3,000 times a day, right? And you're going to fail and fail and fail until you don't. Yep. 
And then sometimes you're still going to fail that even the greatest among us, like even Picasso made some stinkers. It's just, it just happens. <laughs> I, like seriously. Um, I know. It's, it's so important though. Like it sounds so cheesy and it's so true that overwhelmingly you're going to make shit. You know what I mean? Like overwhelmingly you're going to just like put out stuff. I bet that by the time I made it to a million words that I had written, like the best thing that I, Probably one of the best two things that I ever wrote, I wrote in the last like four years because, I mean, obviously, like you have to be shitty at it to get better at it and learn what people like. Mm -hmm. Um, And it sounds so cliche, but it's so true. And it's okay to get worse at things too. That (laughs) as I get older, my voice is changing and I can't hit notes as easily as I used to. Oh my God. It's just part of aging. But I've also leaned into the fact that other parts of my voice are now more interesting. Mm -hmm. I re recorded. Uh, one song 10 years after it was written uh, uh, during COVID as an exercise. And what started off as this sort of upbeat, fun love song is now a lot sa- is like wiser, sadder in a lot of ways, but <laughs> yeah. is more lovely in a sense because it's yeah. like love is lived in over that period. Yeah. Um, and while I am worse, I think now at singing than I was before from a technical standpoint, my uh, instrument can't do what it did before as easily as it did before. It doesn't mean that what I'm producing isn't just as good or more impactful. Right. It's just diff. It's just different. Yep. Um, and there you see a lot of athletes with them. They get worse at their sport at a certain point. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to do. The, the ones who can make adjustments um, and do it gracefully are the ones who continue to succeed. Um, and if you just keep trying to do things the same old way and you're you're not creative, right? You just do the same thing over and over again, even though you're not getting the same results, then you're going to wind up bitter and angry. And what I hope for everyone who's listening is that I think the word play is the most important thing here. Yeah. Let yourself play. Yeah. Don't have a goal beyond the playing and the exploration. <laughs> And know that not you're not always going to produce good things, but that's fine. Oh my <laughs> like, god, it's actually a good thing. Can we? Can we have? Can we make T-shirts that say "Play, Sleep, Fail"? Yeah, right? I think I think that's that's like that is the key to creative output is play, goof around with music and things way outside of your medium, and take a lot of naps. And I'm dead serious, like. The creative brain has to sleep for your brain to do all that like sorting of shit and putting putting things in the right drawer and then fuck it up all the time, constantly, forever. Don't be afraid. If someone's like, that's really shitty, you're like, thank you, it's my first try. <laughs> By the way, nothing intimidates if if like you wonder what the difference is between creative and non-creative people. It's when someone says, That sucked, a creative person is like, Yeah, I can't wait to try it again. And a non-creative person will say, I'm never doing this again. Yeah. That it, that is it, um, and it's funny as you get older, it, some people get more embarrassed, yeah, um, that they feel like they should be good at everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, and all I can say is I am a significantly worse piano player than I was when I was fourteen. <laughs> um, that's fine. I still like noodling with the piano, and I'm, I'm not embarrassed about it because I just yeah. I can't devote the time and energy to it. Also, my hands are not quite as spry as they once were. Yeah. Um, and also, I make a lot. I make a lot of bad shit. You all hear? <laughs> we have a couple episodes that we never released. 
Um, <gasps> I have, I would say, 95% of the things that I've written or recorded will never be released publicly. <laughs> Not because they're ne- I'm embarrassed about them, just because I don't, just because they're mine. They're oh. my own little beautiful failures. I wish I could say that the majority of my failures did not get released, but the majority of my failures are still available online for your reading. Oh, I definitely have some <laughs> failures available online. Um, <sighs> and one of my, I was uh, on a date with someone and they came across some of my old music. Um, and that was hideously embarrassing for about four <laughs> seconds uh, until I realized that, you know, it, it made for a great conversation, a good story. And, um, we had a really good, we had a laugh about it. <laughs> and I want to tell the, the story I told about wearing the Hawaiian shirts and the, and the <laughs> lion khakis. There is a funny uh, denouement to that is that when I started senior year of college, I was dressing very differently, had my hair spiked up. I had like the tight fitting black jeans. It was very like emo post hardcore. Um, and I was, I was dating an artist and um, I, I'd mentioned at some point I had, uh, guest taught i given a guest lecture in a class my sophomore year about um the infrastructure of online professional gaming because i was doing a lot of work at that point and i wore a black dragon hawaiian t-shirt i had long hair around my chin um and i was wearing my lined khakis (laughs) and then she just put her head in her hands and she went i'm dating that guy (laughs) yeah and it was it was a great relationship um and uh that guy was not a singular thing in time. Uh, that yes. embarrassment I learned from yep. about never to wear lined khakis again. <laughs> Black dragon Hawaiian <laughs> shirts I will wear as a joke from time to time. Um, but like the only thing that holds people back a lot of the time from discovering and playing is that sense of shame, is that embarrassment. And just you got to push through it. You got to push through it. Oh, when I, can I tell you, listen, I'm going to say something on this podcast that might get me some angry reacts. I doubt it. I don't actually think it's that controversial, but like (laughs) sometimes when people are like, uh, like, sorry, you couldn't make it in corporate America. I'm like, that is not the flex that you think it is. First of all, about yourself, like, sorry, you weren't very good at conforming. And a lot of times what I want to say is like, I'm so sorry that you're too afraid to try to build anything without a blueprint. Like, I'm so sorry that you have no balls. <laughs> and, and it being the right decision has nothing to do with whether or not, like, the outcome is of what your adventures have been. Like, there's a, tw- a tweet by Simo Liu uh, about – it was, like, the anniversary of when he quit his corporate law firm awesome. to try to become an actor. But, like – People are like, see, it was the right decision. He's so successful. I'm like, it was the right decision whether or not he was successful. Correct. Correct. Right? And I think that's where it always gets me. They're like, you know, oh, Ken Jong, like, you know, he quit that career. But luckily, he's successful now. I'm like, it was still the right decision for him. It was still the right decision. It would be the right decision if he failed. Because there is, you talk to old people, go to a fucking nursing home and talk to an old person and ask them what they would tell you. And the answer is to do the thing that you wanted to do. Like, ask 95% of old people. And they're like, God, I wish I hadn't let 
other people's opinion of me stop me from doing the thing that now I'm too fucking old to do. <laughs> I have to say, when I'm an old person, I'm not going to be like, man, I really should have taken that corporate law job. Ex- oh, man, exactly. That's, that's what's going to eat me up in the, the last days of my life. <laughs> I really should have gone to work for Goldman after undergrad. I could have, you know. No. There like, are- there, the things that I regret are the things that are just like, man, I should have been more courageous and, and tried this thing. If you look around you, there is someone living their dream. It might not be, you know, uh, I have a friend, Erica, who is a lovely human being. And also just like she's she she for, had this business and has a business called uh, Circle City Creations. But she is like a paper artist. Like she makes like um, beautiful, elaborate, like invitations, like wedding invitations or like um I don't know. I it's hard for even just to call, to call it like a greeting card or like stationery is like an absolute. She travesty. makes beautiful things with paper. She makes beautiful things with paper and did it and went out and did her own thing and and worked for herself and through that by being successful at that was able to find a really nice stable corporate gig doing the thing that she loved, which was what she did in her business. And they were like, wow, goddamn, you're really good at this. Would you do all of this for us? And she said, sure. And now she has exactly the thing that everybody gives up their dream to find, which is, you know, a stable gig for as long as you want to stay there. And she's doing the thing that she always wanted to do. Point is fucking do it. Fucking do it. Fucking do it. Creativity is just the bravery it takes to fail. That's all it is. It's the mm-hmm. willingness to fail. Yeah. So that's what we're going to leave you with uh, today, dear listeners. Yes. We hope that you go out, try something, and we hope that no matter what, that you bounce back up and try it again. Fail again, fail better, right? Exactly. What's the, what's the so, hang on. And sometimes on. you'll fail worse. <laughs> like, yeah. so, sometimes you're just like, nope, that was three steps back. That was worse than last time. <laughs> Oh yes, this is uh, Samuel Beckett's mantra. This is uh, uh, put some. We put some like, you know, moving music behind this, and I'm gonna read it. Okay. 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 Oops. Oh God. Hold on. Let me mark it. The internet is broken. The internet is like, would you like another pop up? And I said no, thank you. And it's like, uh, I don't know. Um, (laughs) I'm pretty sure that you want some. Okay. What? And by the way, if you are going to be creative, don't be creative in how to like put more ads on the internet. We don't need more. <laughs> Here we go. Okay. Cue the move of music. First the body. No. First the place. No. First both. Now either. Now the other. Sick of the either. Try the other. Sick of it back. Sick of the e- either. So on. Somehow on. Till sick of both. Throw up and go. Where neither. Till sick of there. Throw up and back. The body again, where none, the place again, where none, try again, fail again, better again, or better worse, fail worse again, still worse again, till sick for good, throw up for good, go for good, where neither, for good, good and all. Yes. That's excellent. (laughs) So dear listeners, as always... Uh, go to metalhoney.com. We talked about it before, so we're not going to talk about it again. <laughs> but go to metalhoney.com, get some hot honey. Um, and that's going to do it for today. Uh, I'm Matthew Goodman. I'm Sarah Merle. And this has been the Perpetual Stew. You can find us uh, online at, uh, if you want to tweet at us, uh, go to at perpstew. 
I thought you'd like that handle. Uh, so at perpstew, or you can hit us up on Facebook or anywhere else. Please like, subscribe, share the show. Um, and until next time, stay curious. Bye. <laughs>